Welcome to Sparking Wholeness, where we talk all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. I'm your host, Erin Carey. I'm a survivor of bipolar disorder and a self-proclaimed nutrition nerd who loves asking why. As a certified integrative nutrition health coach, my goal is to help people find balance, and I want to help you find ways to spark wholeness in your life. For more information, check out sparkingwholeness.com or on the Instagram handle, Sparking Wholeness. And now, get ready for today's awesome show. Hey everyone, it's Aaron Carey. Today, I am sitting down with Jack Bobo. He is the CEO of Futurity, a food foresight company that advises companies, foundations, and governments on emerging food trends and consumer attitudes and behaviors related to the future of food. Recognized by Scientific American in 2015 as one of the 100 most influential people in biotechnology, Jack is a global thought leader who has delivered more than 500 speeches in 50 countries. He previously served as the Chief Communications Officer and Senior Vice President for Global Policy and Government Affairs at Intrixon, I think I said that right, (laughs) Corporation. Jack worked at the U.S. Department of State for 13 years as a Senior Advisor for Global Food Policy, Food Security, Climate Change, Biotechnology, and Agricultural Trade. An attorney with a scientific background, Jack received from Indiana University a JD and MS in environmental science, as well as a BS in biology and BA in psychology and chemistry. That is a great blend right there. His new book is called Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices, and I can't wait to discuss it. So Jack, thank you so much for being on the show. It is truly my pleasure. Sorry for that long introduction. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's great. I just want to, you know, I don't want to mess up the names as I'm reading everything at once, but your background is impressive and you just have a wide range of blending technology, science, chemistry, psychology, biology, I mean, all of the ologies. (laughs) And it sounds like you are somebody, you like learning is what it sounds like. I do. I do. I just dive into topics and consume as much information as I can. And then a lot of it, though, is about how do you take that information and then communicate in a way that people get it? Yes. And that's where your book comes in, in a way that I don't know if people are ready for, right? Because we kind of, we have all these pre-existing ideas about health and eating and what it means to be healthy, but it's hard to take in new information, as you mentioned in your book. Yeah. And, you know, it, if people would just listen to their dietitians and their nutritionists, we, we would be so much better off. But somehow people think it's so much harder than you know the advice that they're getting, and they're looking for silver bullets to solve problems. When by and large they kind of know what they should be doing, but they just have trouble doing it. Yep. Yeah, and it's like we are all told, you know, eat less, exercise more, but that, why isn't that working? Why aren't we, our brains can't wrap around that information and actually make it happen? Yeah, you know, our, our minds in many ways are undermining our efforts as our, our, our environments. And so when you think about it, we've never known more about health and nutrition than any time in the history of the planet. And yet we've never been more obese. 42% of Americans are obese today and we're on our way to 50% by 2040 or 2030 if we don't do something about it. And, you know, it's definitely not a willpower problem. You know, a lot of people say, oh, if you could just, you know, stick to this diet. 
But, you know, if you can't stick to the diet, it's not your fault. It's the diet's fault, <laughs> you know, because, you know, there are so many diets out there. And if you could stick to any of them, you would probably be fine. And so it sort of begs the question, why can't we stick to diets? Why can't we do what we know that we need to do, especially if it's not a willpower issue? And so that's part of what intrigued me about uh, the topic of, you know, why are all of these smart people struggling so much? And so, you know, I sort of dove into the psychology of food and our brain. You know, what are the questions that uh, our brain is leading us to the wrong answers to? Um, but that then led me to our food environment. And that's something that's changed, changed really dramatically in the last 50 or 60 years. If you went back to 1955 and you went into the McDonald's when it first, when the first chain store opened, uh, you would have gotten, you know, a hamburger, a small fry or a fry and a soda. And that soda would have been seven ounces. That's an adult serving size. And your hamburger would have been 3.9 ounces compared to, you know, a 12 ounce hamburger today. And, you know, that's with all of the toppings and everything, 3.9 ounces. And of course, the small fry doesn't exist anymore because what we think of a small McDonald's fry today is a large fry from 1972. Wow. And so if you're eating so much more than you were in the past, then can it be any surprise at all if you eat twice as much food that you gain weight? Yeah, but, and that is so interesting. I didn't know. I mean, I think about that size of drink is in our kids, the kids portions of the McDonald's Happy Meals now. So what used to be adult size drink is now what we're giving kids. Oh. Well, a, and a, a child size is a 12 ounce soda. So, you know, it's almost 50% larger or wow. it is more than 50% larger than an adult serving size. Wow, that is so interesting. So I want to read one of the quotes from the very beginning of the book that I thought was really interesting and just got me thinking about this in a new way. And you say strongly held opinions, give us the confidence to be decisive and make important decisions. Weakly held opinions are equally important because that means you're not too attached to what you believe. Being too attached to ideas undermines our ability to see and hear evidence that conflicts with our opinions. So how does this impact the way we view food? Yeah. So, you know, you hear information all the time and, you know, we're sort of influenced by, you know, what we're hearing in the media, what we're hearing from our friends. And often scientific information just can't change our perspective. You know, it, it seems like one of the challenges is that scientific information at the beginning of a conversation, in many ways, it just polarizes the audience. Those who agree with you agree with you more. But those who disagree actually disagree with you more. They become more ingrained in their perspectives. And, you know, that's a, a problem because, you know, if we want to learn, then we need to be willing and able to change our minds. And, you know, we've sort of forgotten that, you know, when we were in high school, when we were in college, the ability to change your mind was a good thing. It meant that you were learning. And yet, now it seems like it's a bad thing. You know, if I can argue an issue to, you know, to death and, and not change my mind, somehow that's a better perspective than somebody who's willing to admit, you know, I was wrong and I just learned something. I mean, we should revel in that fact that we're learning things. Ooh, I love what you said just there. Something about, we, I've got to write it down. If we want to learn, we need to be willing to change our mind. I just, I think that is so good. And actually, 
that's a great place to pause and thank our sponsor for today's episode because it ties in so well. Today's episode is sponsored by Talkspace. When they say mental health is a journey, they mean it. That's why it is so important to prioritize mental health and wellness every single day. I know this is true for me, but when we work on ourselves, it brings positive changes in all areas of life. The long-term effects of therapy can give us the tools we need to deal with challenges as they arise, strengthen our relationships, and it brings a more positive outlook on life. And there is no better time to invest in yourself than right now. For me, therapy has absolutely changed my perspective of the world and my place in it. And so, I can bear the weight of these changes that life brings in a much more balanced way with a balanced perspective and outlook. I love it. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform that has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more. Your therapist can help you set and achieve your goals. And Talkspace is a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. Instead of waiting for an appointment, you can send unlimited messages to your therapist 24-7, and they'll engage with you daily five days a week, which can be so helpful because some Sometimes we just need somebody to give us a different perspective on what we're going through. And it's just helpful to talk through that with somebody. Talkspace is also secure and private, which I know is so, so important. It uses the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information, and it complies with the latest HIPAA regulations. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code SPARKINGWHOLENESS to get $100 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's SPARKINGWHOLENESS and Talkspace.com. Now, I want to touch back on, on what you're sharing and, and why, I'd love to know, why do you believe that some people can't say I was wrong or be willing to change their mind. What is it about us? Because I'm, I see this in myself. I see this in, in social media, unfortunately, where we get into all these arguments. But what is it about us that we can't see past our own biases? Well, a lot has changed over time as well. So as society, we have less confidence in authority figures. You know, So we don't necessarily trust the government. We don't necessarily trust our doctor as much as we used to. And we have access to information from so many different places that it becomes easier to find information that sort of confirms what you already believe. And we're all really good when it comes to confirmation bias, you know, that the ability to search out information that's consistent with our beliefs and discount information that's not. We see it when others do it, but boy, is it hard to recognize when we're the ones who are being biased in what we believe. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am probably, I mean, I can say that for myself. I love picking apart double standards and seeing those all over the place, but I have to check myself because I know I have those same double standards depending on, on what it is. And it does make a difference in how I interact and the choices that I make with food, lifestyle, all of that. I'd love to hear your thoughts on why do people fear certain food over others? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Our, our food is in many ways safer than it ever has been. And yet people are actually more concerned about their food. And, you know, part of that's just human nature. 
um, we are wired to have a certain level of concern. And in the past, we could direct that to real food safety issues. Um, but as our food has become safer and safer, we've just continued to worry the same amount. And so now we're worried about smaller and smaller risks. Um, another part of the challenge is that we're hardwired to understand hazards, but we're not hardwired to understand risk, unless you're a nutritionist or somebody who deals with this every day. And of course, risk is hazard times the exposure to the hazard, which equals risk. But if I tell you that you know, some food ingredient can cause cancer, you know, you're thinking, wow, I, I should avoid that. But just because something can cause cancer doesn't mean it actually does cause cancer under real world circumstances. And just, you know, one example of that, you know, water is toxic. And I don't mean that, you know, and a number of people die every year from the toxicity of water, not because they're drowning, but they've drank so much water that there's a toxic effect on the body and they die. And this happens to athletes and others. And yet, obviously, we wouldn't want to, to ban the use of water because it's toxic. Um, and so, you know, it, that's very hard, though, to convey that distinction between hazard and risk uh, to anybody. So it's not, you know, just, um, you know, people who are uninformed, but all people sort of respond in that same way. Yeah, that's that's funny. I didn't think. I mean, it's true. People do. I, I hear about that over over hydration, right? Like there, and there's really risk with anything. Um, but we do, we get consumed with certain ingredients and certain things. And orthorexia is a big concern right now. There are a lot of people that are literally suffering from this disordered way of thinking about food and, oh, this is clean. This is not clean. And I, maybe you could go into that. Yeah. I, you know, I don't want to say too much about it, but certainly, you know, that is a concern that, you know, people are pursuing what they believe is a cleaner and cleaner diet and it's making people sicker and sicker. And, you know, that's part of where we need to be able to help people to understand that, you know, eating a balanced and nutritious diet, that it's not, there are no superfoods out there. You know, it's really just eating the right foods in the right proportion. And, you know, there are really no bad foods if they're part of a nutritious diet. Um, you know, that should be liberating. And yet we're searching for clean diets that limit more and more things that we can do. And we enjoy our food less and our relationship with food is just, you know, less beneficial and positive. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you talked about superfoods and I once heard somebody say that your superfood is whatever food you eat that makes you feel super. <laughs> There's no special formula. It's just whatever it is that makes you feel nourished and great. And I think that that's important to consider because it's so confusing and it always changes. Right. Well, you know, when I think about a superfood, I'm thinking, well, name me one superfood that I can consume that I have, I don't need five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. And, you know, the reality is that there is no superfood that can replace all of those servings, you know, otherwise, you know, so if you get the right number of servings of fruits and vegetables, you don't need superfoods and superfoods won't replace it even if you do. And yeah. so, you know, we, it's just not as complicated as mm -hmm. we'd like it to be. But that doesn't mean it's easy. It's just not as complicated. Right. Yeah, for sure. So what is what you call the naturalness bias? I'd love to ask about that. Yeah, well, it, there, there's a lot of research out there that shows that if you put the word natural on a product, people just think happy thoughts. You know, they're thinking butterflies and rainbows and, and they will 
attribute all sorts of qualities to that product. They think that it's lower in calorie. They think it's more nutritious. They think it's higher in protein. And yet, you know, the Food and Drug Administration doesn't even have any real definition for the word natural. So, you know, if you have the same product and you add the word natural, uh, consumers are just wildly more interested in that product, even though it's a, a term that doesn't have any name. And of course, the converse is that, you know, something is man-made, we kind of assume that it's not uh, safe or as safe. And yet, of course, you know, COVID and Ebola and salmonella and listeria and all of those bad things in the world, they're all natural too. But we all <laughs> yeah. go to that happy place, right? Uh, so we need to sort of be aware of how our minds can mislead us so that we can then sort of be on guard against it. It's not that it's a problem to buy a product with the word natural, but we should know that, you know, it, it convinced us more than it probably should have. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's good. And I think that goes for a lot of different things that are put on food labels. It does. You know, you put a low fat label on the product and people assume it's low in calories. And, you know, those are two completely different things. Um, and also they'll enjoy it less, you know, because our brain thinks, oh, if it's good for me, it probably doesn't taste good, which is, you know, really sad. You know, we, we should be thinking, oh, it's good for us. It must be delicious. Wouldn't that be a nice thing for people to think? Why, why do we think that? Because that's so true. I've never thought about that before. What is it that makes us think that if it's healthy for us, it's not going to be tasty? Is it growing childhood, growing up, what media tell, like what is behind that? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, for some, it, it has to do with how we raise our kids. You know, we, you know, we reward them with dessert if they eat their vegetables. So we're kind of telling them, well, the vegetables must not be good or I wouldn't need to be bribed. Right. <laughs> And they're also kind of watching what their parents do. And if the parents are, you know, leaving the vegetables on the plate or, you know, they're not really sort of digging into them or they're not filling their plate with the product, then we're indirectly sending a message that maybe that's not the best part of the meal. And so there are all of these subtle forces that are acting on us that are leading us to that feeling that it's probably not as good. Yeah, our kids pick up on those cues. You know, with that, I think this is something that actually happened in my house the other day. I have a four-year-old and he's just starting to pick up on commercials, right? And he came to me and he said, I want that bring out the tiger cereal. And I was like, bring out the tiger? What are you talking about? Because he didn't say the name for it. It was just the, and I was like, oh, duh, Frosted Flakes. <laughs> you know? they, they do such a great job at marketing to kids. I think he really thought like, this is going to bring out the tiger in me. <laughs> and that's true for adults kind of in, in a different way, right? We think, oh, it's gluten-free or, oh, it's this free or it's low fat or it's heart healthy. That's another one that we see everywhere. What, what, what does that even mean for something to be heart healthy? You know, what's, what are the guidelines behind that? Yeah. Well, I, I'll leave that to the nutritionist, but you know, that, <laughs> that is one of the challenges is that you know, just because something, you know, improves heart health in some study where people were eating 19 bowls a day doesn't necessarily mean under sort of our real world conditions, it has that much of an impact. What it probably means is it's not a bad thing if you eat it. And, you know, but it's not going to, you know, protect you from disease uh, because it's only one component of a diverse diet. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That, that I think that that's, and I, I like your approach to, seeing everything as, like you said, a balanced, adding 
to a balanced diet and balanced meal and not demonizing one thing, not saying that one thing is better than all other things, but we are in an environment that is working against us. And how can we get past that? Yeah, you know, and the whole supersize craze can be traced back to one man who is responsible for all of it. Back in the 1960s, there was this uh, gentleman, David Wallerstein, who was uh, at a restaurant or at a theater company, and he was trying to figure out, how can I get people to eat more popcorn? Sort of that quintessential challenge. And he tried all sorts of different things. And eventually he thought, well, what if I gave them a bigger size? Because his thought was people are just, they feel that it would be gluttonous to go back for an extra bag. And so that was impeding purchases, even though they wanted more popcorn, they just didn't feel comfortable asking for it. And so then he introduced the jumbo size. And of course, the rest is history. It took off, but also sales of soda uh, increased. And then later he was hired by the McDonald's company. And he, you know, Ray Kroc was like, if people want a second bag of fries, they'll just go buy a second bag of fries. And he's like, I don't think you know how this works. And, you know, eventually they, they did introduce in 1972 the, the large size fry. And again, it turned out that it was true. And while he thought that it was people are, would feel embarrassed about it, what I think the psychology has more recently shown is it's probably something called unit bias, that we just think of whatever size we have as being the right size. And when you have a choice between a small and a large, then you feel comfortable with the large, not because you're, you're more or less embarrassed, but we think one serving of popcorn is one bag, whether the bag is this big or, you know, or small, that's, that's normal. And we actually see this a lot. You know, you've probably gone to, uh, you know, a business party or event and they serve uh, sandwiches for lunch and often the sandwiches are cut in half. Well, you probably don't take two of them and put it on your plate. You probably take like half of the sandwich because once you cut them in half, each one is a sandwich. And so unit bias tells us we should only be eating one of them. And so, you know, that's where we can begin to actually harness this idea of the psychology though. You know, if you have a different serving size, uh, people will just assume it's the right size uh, because we're just not that good at, you know, um, discerning, you know, what we should be eating. So you put food in front of me, that must be how much I'm supposed to eat. You serve me half as much food, well, that's probably how much I'm supposed to eat. And so there are all of these different ways that we can maybe begin to use those changes that have occurred over time and the lessons we've learned about them to now begin to uh, reprogram our environment. That is so interesting. And a lot of that probably comes from childhood too, right? Because we give our kids a certain like, eat, eat whatever's on your plate, clean your plate, you know, the whole clean your plate club, like, is that working against us? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's unfortunate that there are good reasons why we're encouraging our kids because we want them to eat the things they didn't really want to eat. But that mentality of we need to clean our plate is problematic when you have so much food on. And I'll, I'll just give you an example. I, a few years ago, I went to um, the Cheesecake Factory for Father's Day with my wife and two kids. And I, I wanted to teach them this lesson about, you know, big portion sizes. And, you know, obviously it's a restaurant that's known for that. And so we went there and I ordered the, the steak and the mashed potatoes and the green beans and it came out and I was like, oh no, this isn't as much food as I was expecting. I think I can actually clean my plate. 
And I was a little disappointed, but unlike most people, then I took a nine inch plate out of my wife's purse and I <laughs> replayed my food. Yeah, you can imagine how embarrassed my kids were. And, and when I replated it, I realized it was two full meals. Half of that oh. meal covered the nine inch plate. And so then I took a tape measure out of my wife's purse, <laughs> further embarrassing my children. And I measured the plate. It was a 15 inch plate by 12 inches deep. So it actually, the, the area was more than twice the area of that nine inch plate. And so visually I looked at it and because there was so much empty space on the plate, I thought, yeah, that's not a big deal. That's not as much as I was expecting. And so the psychology of it is I might've actually finished the meal and not even known I ate two meals of food. Wow. So this gets into you know, your question about you know, cleaning your plate is that we are expected to do that. But if you eat two meals for the price of one, that's not really good value because you're actually less healthy and you actually probably enjoyed it less. You know, that feeling of just being sick from having eaten too much food. On the other hand, what would happen if at the beginning of the meal they said, would you like all of that served or would you like the to-go portion bagged before you even see it? And so now you get two meals for the price of one. That's great value. Mm -hmm. So it's not about demonizing the restaurants for giving you lots of food. You know, that's a good thing if you eat the right amount. It's not a good food, a good deal if you overconsume. Yeah, that's that's very interesting because you know, when I go to a restaurant with my husband, oftentimes we will share a meal and there, the last time we went, actually, they split it up onto two plates. And it was very different than when we just have the one plate and we have to spoon it off ourselves. You know, there's a different, it was almost like there wasn't enough food when it was all on the one plate. But when it was separated for us, it was like, oh, this is plenty of food. So that's, that's super interesting. I didn't even think to dig into that. But I love the psychology behind the thinking of that. And you know, so it's not about denying people something. So if you go to McDonald's and you, you know, get the, the large size of, you know, the quarter pounder and the large fry and the large soda, you know, that's a lot of calories. But if you were to get, you know, just a regular hamburger, small fry and small soda, then you could get dessert and you'd still have fewer calories than you did without the dessert. So you might have a more, you know, enjoyable meal you would get the right, a better number of calories and you just have this nicer experience. So it's not about denying, it's not about you know suffering, uh, it's about getting what you need, not getting what we want, which is everything. Yeah, because our, our minds, they do play tricks on us. And I'd love for you to talk about the milkshake experiment. You have a chapter in your book that discusses this. I'd love for listeners to hear about this because I find it fascinating. Yeah, so it, it's my favorite uh, research paper title of all time is called Mind Over Milkshakes. And it's just a really interesting study where uh, a professor was wondering what happens in the body when we think we're getting one thing, but we're really getting another. Now, there's been a lot of research that shows if you give somebody a cookie and you tell them it's low fat, they will enjoy it less than if uh, they know it's just a regular cookie. Um, so what she did is that she made up a batch of um, vanilla milkshakes and she labeled half of them indulgent milkshake and then half of them as low fat. 
And so then people tried them. And of course, people like the indulgent one more than the other one, even though, of course, it's the same product. But then she looked at the biology. What's happening in the gut when we get one versus the other? And what she found is that the body was much more satiated when it thought it was getting an indulgent shake than when it got the, what it thought was a low fat product. And that's really interesting because our body is telling our brain, we're not so full when we think we're eating a low fat product, even when, you know, it's not the case. And so, you know, that raises all sorts of real questions about how we, you know, we're purchasing low fat products or low calorie or other things. We're basically telling our body, this is not going to satisfy you. Not just, is it not going to be as good, but you're not, you're going to need more an hour from now. And so it doesn't work as well as we would like, you know, all of these products that are intended to make us healthier, our body is pushing back. So that's not the fault of the company producing the product, but our psychology and physiology are working against us. Hmm. And so it's like our, our bodies are saying, well, wait a minute, this is, I'm supposed to have more than this. So instead of having like, you know, one low calorie, low fat, whatever, we're, we end up having so many more than we would have if we had just stuck to the regular thing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. And so th there's this idea of something called the snack well effect. And, you know, it's, it's that same concept that, you know, you, you get a cookie or something that a cracker that, you know, is labeled low in fat or something like that. And you, you'll finish the entire bag because you expect it's healthier. Well, you know, maybe if you ate the same amount of the low fat product of, as of a normal product, you would get perhaps a health benefit, but if you eat twice as much, then, you know, it's no benefit at all. And unfortunately, when we get, when we buy products that have this health halo, it kind of gives us permission to overindulge. Yeah, I have experienced that myself. And I know that's a very real thing. Yeah, that is so interesting. And, you know, I forgot, I wanted to ask you getting back to the food portions, it does seem and, and this might even be true for labels and ingredients and all of that. It does seem that there's a difference between what we get here in the US and what people are getting in Europe. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, I think it's definitely true. You know, if you look at portion sizes and other things, uh, you know, in Europe versus the United States, but things are trending in the direction of the United States. Mm -hmm. So it's really that they're, you know, a decade or so behind us. So portion sizes are getting bigger, that the, the types of snacking is getting, you know, greater. Um, but then you also just have interesting differences. You know, the, the French are known for using lots of fats and butter and cream and other things in their food. And, you know, in Italy with lots of pasta and, and other things that, you know, we normally demonize. And so it's hard to point to one thing because it's really about the culture. It's about the environment. If you have an environment in which you are walking more and, you know, more active, then maybe it doesn't matter that there's the fat and carbs in your diet. On the other hand, if your environment changes so that you're not doing those things, then portions that were okay in one circumstance, then all of a sudden they're not. So even if we eat exactly like they do in these other places, that doesn't mean we're going to have the same, you know, health outcome by its in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes me think of the blue zones, which you also mention in your book. It's one of my favorite topics because 
they eat a wide variety of things. And I don't think no, in any one blue zone eats the same thing, but they all have really great health outcomes. So what, what is that about? So let me give a minute or two background on what blue zones are for for your listeners who who may not be familiar. you know, back around 2000, uh, Dan Butner, who was an explorer for the National Geographic, uh, ran across some studies that suggested that there were certain uh, communities where people were living really long periods of time. And he was wondering, well, what is it about that community that's encouraging people to live longer? And so he then looked around the world and said, well, are there other places that really stand out as having long lived uh, communities. And he found a handful of what they they called blue zones around the world. And so then he went and he researched and he identified a number of different factors and, you know, the the kinds of food they eat, but it's also about community. It's about uh, relationships. And so it's a whole environmental set of uh, factors that lead to these outcomes. And another group that's doing a similar uh, thing is the Wellville Project um, so in the United States, there are several communities that are adopting this blue zone approach. And then Wellville are five communities that are doing a similar thing. Uh, Esther Dyson is the founder of Wellville, and she, she provided the uh, uh, forward for my book as well. And they're really saying, can we reverse some of these trends by be- going into communities and reshaping them? And there's been some really great positive results uh, from these efforts. Hmm, that's, I have not, I need to look into that one. That's really fascinating. I'd love to learn more about that because I do, I'm always astounded that we pick apart food issues and this ingredient, that ingredient, when we are all living such stressed out lives that that impacts the decisions that we make. It impacts the digestion of our food. So how does being tired and stressed affect how we eat? Yeah, well, uh, you know, there's a chapter in the book where I talk about mental fatigue and decision fatigue. And I think all of us have experienced that, you know, that's one of the reasons why they say don't go to the grocery store and shop, you know, after a long day of work, because you're, you're mentally tired. And we don't make as good of decisions when we're mentally tired. But in addition to that, a grocery store has tens of thousands of products. So you're also making lots of decisions. And so it's hard often to distinguish between two products. You look at the nutrition labels, if you look at nutrition labels at all, and then you have to compare serving sizes. And so it becomes quite complicated. And so by you know the time we've been at the grocery store for a while, our decisions are just getting worse and worse. And we're, we're choosing you know, products that are probably not as good. And so as challenging as that is, imagine the difference between somebody who has sort of a lower income and a high income person. You know, the high income person isn't really making any tough decisions at all. You know, they know they want the Parmigiano or Reggiano. They don't have to think about whether to buy the craft or not. Um, but, you know, if you're on a fixed food budget, every decision you have to agonize over. And, you know, that's just really hard. And so it, it's not at all surprising that, you know, many times people that are on fixed food budgets are not always making, you know, perhaps the best decisions because of that decision fatigue and that mental fatigue and how much more difficult it is for them. Yeah, that is such a good point. And I think it's something that even, you know, I'm, I'm always hosting different people on my podcast and talking about different uh, nutritional recommendations and dietary changes and all the it's, it's too much. And if you're already struggling 
to pay your bills, you know, get your kids fed. That's just one last thing that you really want to worry about. Oh, what's, what's going to be the best thing for my body right now to nourish me and make me healthier. You know, that's a lot for people. Well, and, and, you know, there are examples, you know, a lot of, you know, to be fair, a lot of influencers will recommend, you know, eating fresh fruits and vegetables. And, you know, there, there's a lot of good reasons for that. You know, they, they, they taste great. They have good nutrients. But again, if you're on a fixed food budget and people are stigmatizing frozen food and canned food, they're undermining people's willingness to try those products because they don't want to give their kids second rate food. Mm -hmm. And instead, we need to recognize that, you know, frozen food, well, is often frozen at its peak of freshness. Mm -hmm. And it may very well be as fresh, if not fresher than the fresh food or than the, you know, the fresh food that is being advocated. And so one is that the products may be nutritionally equal, but if I can buy twice as much frozen for the same price as that, you know, fresh, then, you know, I shouldn't be stigmatized for it. I should be praised for making the smart choice. I agree 100%. Yes. I'm a big fan of the of frozen and, and doing what you can with, like you said, it is when the nutrients are, when the vegetables or fruit, they're at their peak packing range, whatever you want to say for that. So yeah, I think that's important. Um, I love that. So I'd love for you to um, share a little bit about, you know, what are some solutions that, that you recommend for people? How can we change the way that we address our eating habits? Yeah. So there are sort of three areas. There's what can we do personally from a mental standpoint, and that's recognizing some of the psychology of how our brain is leading us to bad choices. Uh, and then there are some of the environmental factors, uh, both in our home, but that can occur, you know, in other places. And, and then there's more of a societal aspect of it. You know, how do we as society uh, help to reshape our, our foodscape so that it's delivering healthier outcomes? And so in that first bucket, you know, we can, helping people to understand about decision fatigue and the naturalness bias and halo effect and all of those help us to be more aware of how our own mind can lead us to bad decisions. And hopefully by understanding that we can be more comfortable in the decisions we're making. We don't have to agonize over, you know, the organic strawberries or the regular strawberries, or we don't have to try to remember what was on the, um, you know, the, the list of, uh, you know, for uh, pesticide residues, because, you know, the residues on our food are generally safe. And, you know, so if you can buy organic, fantastic. If you can't, you should feel good about what you're doing because, you know, having that nutritious food is far more important than any concerns you might have about the dirty dozen. Um, so one is just becoming more comfortable and uh, with the food that we have. The second relates to, you know, reshaping our personal food space. And, you know, there are things we can do there as well. And, you know, one is if you do buy the snacks, you know, maybe you put them in the cupboard instead of leaving them on your countertop. You know, if the cookies are going to go on the countertop, maybe they go in an opaque container instead of sitting out where we can see them. Just creating little nudges that make it a little bit more difficult uh, to do it or keep us from having to worry about it. You know, it's like if you see the cookies there, the first time you walk past and you think not tempted, the second time you walk past it, you think, why that would be good. And then, you know, the third time you're thinking I should be rewarded for having walked past it you know, 10 times oh already. And so, uh, but if you just don't see it, you know, you never think about it. And so it's about making it so that the, the good decision is the easy decision, not, 
you know, counting on our willpower. And then the, the, the last area is, you know, we need to figure out how to work with restaurants and grocery stores and others to help to reshape that environment. And, and I'll just give you uh, a couple of quick examples. You know, one is we go into some restaurants where they give you free refills. And, you know, at some of those restaurants, you know, a standard cup size is 21 ounces. And so if you do like many do, which is you go, you fill up your cup and then you finish it, you get a half a cup and leave. So now you've had, you know, about 30 ounces of soda. On the other hand, uh, if they were to give you a 12 ounce cup as the default, you want a bigger cup, you get a bigger cup. Well, now if you get 12 ounces, you go back and get another uh, half a cup, you know, that's 18 ounces. The difference between 18 and 30, that's 12 ounces. You know, that's uh, about 150 calories. And, you know, if we were to think about just one restaurant chain, uh, Subway has about 40,000 locations, 7 million customers a day, that's a billion calories. So you know, if all of them switch from the 21 ounce to the 12 ounce, you might be able to reduce a billion calories every single day and every consumer would get a healthier outcome and you wouldn't force anybody to do anything. If they want to get three refills, they get it. They want a bigger cup, they get it. Uh, or a different idea would be if when they serve the footlong sub at Subway, they just gave an extra twist to the wrapper for half of it. So now you eat half and then you have to open up a second sandwich. So now we use unit bias to uh, encourage us to, to think about it. And then maybe we think about it and we think, nope, I'm definitely still hungry. Or we think about it and say, hmm, you know, it wouldn't be bad to have a, an extra meal tonight. But the way it is today, we eat half a sandwich, then we get two or three bites into the second half. And then we realize we're kind of full, but now is there really enough to take home? Well, I don't want to throw it away, <laughs> right? You know, so we, we've all gone through that math. And, and then we, you know, inevitably decide that we're just going to, you know, force ourselves to eat it mm -hmm. because somehow you know, throwing it away in our stomach and making us less healthy is better than throwing it away in the trash can. <laughs> yeah, I've yeah. been there. That And yeah. so that's interesting. So you're saying, and what I like about this is you're saying we're not like telling people they can never have the food they like to eat again. You're just saying changing the way it's presented and changing the way it's it's being given to people so that they have these other options. Yeah, I mean, you know, my feeling is that people would have more choices. You know, they wouldn't have to count calories. They wouldn't be, you know, going on restrictive diets. Uh, you know, they would just be naturally eating what they like. I mean, think about it. In 1960, nobody knew anything about nutrition and mm -hmm. nobody gave any thought to how much they were eating. And yet nobody was obese, you know, and they were eating lard and all sorts of things that, you know, we just wouldn't eat today. And nobody gave it a second thought. And so the difference was, of course, one, you know, we were more active probably back then, but by and large, you know, we were just not eating supersized servings, you know, three times a day and yeah. that we weren't snacking between. So it's that environment, not any one thing. And so it should not feel restrictive at all. You know, in the same way we gained one or two or three pounds a year for the last 30 years, we should be able to reshape our environment and lose one or two or three pounds a year for the next 30 years and not even be able to explain why. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love this approach. It makes so much sense because you're right. It's funny. You think about how dieting trends and obesity trends have 
gone up right alongside of each other. Like who was dieting before now I'm an eighties baby. So I don't really know. I just gave away my age, but like, I really think it was probably around what seventies, eighties when all the dieting trends took off. Yeah. So, you know, it really started at the end of the 1970s when the first dietary guidelines was put together and there was this battle between sugar and fat, you know, which mm-hmm. one should we target as the villain of our story and uh, low fat became the, the initial story anyway. And, you know, it was part of that trend towards, you know, deconstructing our food and looking at individual nutrients and, you know, there, there was a lot of good science behind why we did that. You know, we had discovered, you know, uh, vitamin C and all sorts of things that solved uh, certain uh, diseases in the past. But uh, gross, uh, stores and uh, food companies do what they do best, which there was a need and a demand, and they met it. You know, as soon as somebody said, oh, you should be eating more low-fat products, thousands of low-fat products miraculously showed up on the shelves. And our psychology didn't allow us to take advantage of any nutritional benefits that we might have gotten from those products. And so, you know, we can blame the food companies for for how that worked out, but, you know, somebody's going to give you a product. And so if it wasn't this company, it's going to be that one. And, you know, we often think that big, big food is the villain, but, you know, if these small startups scale, they will become big food, right? You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. big food is just whatever the majority is at any given time. And, you know, you, you, some people will have seen, you know, supersize me, the, the, the video or the movie about, you know, somebody's exploration of McDonald's, but you know, what if you went to a Michelin five-star restaurant, three meals a day, and you could order anything you wanted, you know, you're telling me that you're not going to gain, you know, an enormous amount of weight. Uh, you know, the reality is that, you know, many high-end restaurants have much more nutritional content in, in their food. It's just that it's a luxury for most of us. And so, you know, we can blame the McDonald's and the others of the world, but, you know, that doesn't get at exactly what is happening. We reward the companies that give us lots of food. We don't go to the restaurants that give us what quote unquote is a normal size portion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point, man, I could ask you a 1000 more questions, because I'm just fascinated by this topic, but um, I, I want people to buy your book. So tell us where we can get your book and, um, and where we can learn more about you and website, all of that. Sure, thank you. Uh, The book is currently available for pre order on amazon.com and Barnes and Noble. Uh, So you can look for it there, it will be in bookstores on May 11th. My personal website is futurityfood.com, F-U-T-U-R-I-T-Y, food.com. Also on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Clubhouse for those who are on that platform. And would really just encourage people to to reach out to me if you want to have conversations about these topics. I'm just very passionate about what can we do to reshape our environment so that people can enjoy the food they eat more. Yeah, I think that's so important. And (laughs) what comes to mind is not that old saying of you are what you eat. It's you are what you think about what you eat. (laughs) And that's what I'm getting from this conversation. I think it's so beneficial. And one last question that I love to ask people, and that is if you could give one piece of advice to spark someone toward wholeness, what would that be? It would be stress less that 
you know, I feel like, you know, we worry too much about some of these things and that if we could just sit back a little bit and gain a little perspective that we could just enjoy what we're doing more and we would all be better off for it. Yes, I love that. Totally agree. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. I think a lot of people, myself included, are going to learn a lot from you and, and really enjoy your book as well. So thank you for, for doing this. Been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Sparking Wholeness. For more on all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul, check out my website, sparkingwholeness.com. Don't forget to be kind and subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. And to be really kind, you can leave a nice review. I like those.